This past week, uh, maybe a week and a half ago, I was watching a program that was making some comments on artificial intelligence. And so I did a little bit of uh, research online and tried to back up what I was hearing. And I came across this story about bias in using artificial intelligence when a company is trying to sort through resumes. So a large company and they have thousands of resumes to sort through and they, ha they develop an algorithm in order to process through it. They base it on the performance of uh, current employees. And so they look across all of the performance reviews and they have systems for this and they have ways of measuring it and they put all that information into an algorithm and the artificial intelligence pops out. These are the resumes you want to pay attention to, except for the bias. Well, it turns out that uh, in this one story, and I, here I'm quoting from an article on Quartz.com. It's an e-zine, a business e-zine. The piece is entitled, Companies are on the hook if their hiring algorithms are biased. Here's what it says there. Mark Gerard, an employment attorney at Nyland Johnson Lewis, says one of his clients was vetting a company selling a resume screening tool but didn't want to make the decision until they knew what the algorithm was prioritizing in a person's CV. After an audit of the algorithm, the resume screening company found that the algorithm found two factors to be most indicative of job performance. The person's name had to be Jared, and they had to have played lacrosse in high school. Good old Jared in lacrosse. Uh, it, the piece goes on to say, Gerard's client did not use the tool. Um, good. Bias. So this morning, as we begin our time, let's ask the question, does God have a bias? More particularly, when it comes to deploying his servants, uh, especially calling people into leadership, does God have a bias? And if so, what is it? With that question in mind, let's go ahead and read our text this morning. We are actually in Titus. We finished up 2 Timothy last week. We're in a series where we're looking at um, uh, everyday Christianity with Tim, Titus, and Phil. Timothy, we looked at 2 Timothy. Now Titus will still approach Philemon in a little bit. Um, but this is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Let's hear the word of God. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. 
To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. May God bless the reading of His Word. May God show His favor on us as we gather under His Word today. All right, today we're going to divide the uh, message into three parts. Uh, Elders, Cretans, and then the pure and the defiled. Elders, Cretans, and the pure and defiled. All this is that we want to focus on growing an algorithm inside of us, a bias inside of us for God's things, a godly bias. All right, let's first look at elders. I was talking uh, with one of our uh, church family this morning about what recess looks like uh, at schools today and, and what they use their lunch or recess time for. And it seems like there's some connection to my own experience growing up. I remember at Bagby Elementary School, that we were given a little bit more time than what I think students have today. We had 20 minutes in the morning recess, and then we had, I don't know, something like a 45-minute, almost an hour lunch. Uh, We needed the time to digest and process our day. We would play kickball. There would always be this kickball game that would somehow develop, and we'd we'd go out, and and probably the two best players would become captains. They, They would choose members for their side. Well, this will come as no surprise to you that I was often on the tail end of being chosen for a kickball team, but, but they would have a bias. They, they would have a bias. They wanted to win. They were looking for people who knew how to play the game and could play the game well. Maybe there uh, was a bias for fun. They wanted to have fun, so maybe there was a bias for the people that they liked, so there might be proven to them, but they really wanted to win. There was a bias for the people who could play kickball well. When it comes to picking leaders for a church, what is the bias that we might have? Over the course of my career, I've heard and observed and heard from other pastors as well that as churches go to pick leaders, there can be different biases that come into mind. One is giving potential. This is the idea that, that you would pick somebody who's, who's wealthy. It's a wealthy bias because the idea is if, if we give them a, a position of authority and a, a meaningful role, maybe they might give us more money. There's also the bias toward business abilities. Gosh, they, they, they lead their business well, and what we need is good business leaders here in the church. They can solve all of our problems for us and skirt us around different challenges. Sometimes there's a bias for membership longevity. Well, you know, it's really their turn to serve in that position. We might as well let them serve at this point. Conversely, there can be just the opposite. It can be a, a, a bias toward somebody younger. What we need is fresh voices, or, or they're new to the church. If we call them into a significant position, maybe they'll have greater ownership in our church. Sometimes our bias can be developed out of our vision for what the church is. If we have a view that the church is really more of a club, you know how a country club might gather for meals and they gather for activities, and maybe that's a person's vision for what the church is. We gather for meals and we gather for activities, and so we might seek out leaders that a country club might seek out. Or if we see ourselves as a community center and we want to bring together energetic Uh, leaders with vision for the community, or maybe we might see ourselves more like a museum. 
that we exist to keep things that are old. We might consider ourselves a living museum, but data might show that we're more of a dying museum. And so we seek out uh, curators of our traditions to hold them uh, alive. When we look at our text, we find that Paul has left Titus in Crete, and we'll talk more about Crete in a moment, to be able to identify leaders for the congregations that are being set up in the various towns on the island uh, of Crete. And so Paul gives to Titus a, uh, a list of things to look for. In other words, Paul's bias for leadership in these churches. And as Paul is now representing God's word for us that, that, and speaking this so that we accept this as God's word in our world today, that we understand this to be a bias from God as well. Let's talk about it. Let's first talk about the terms that he uses for the leaders. He uses the term elder, and he uses the term bishop, and he uses the term steward. So the Greek words would be uh, presbuteros. And do you hear in that presbuteros, the root of Presbyterian? In our denomination, we're Presbyterians, and, and that's the word for elders, and we rely significantly on elders for uh, leadership in our experience of the faith. Episkopos is the word for bishop. We find that Paul, in this passage, is using those two terms interchangeably. So, an elder or a bishop, and he's using it just meaning the same thing, a leader in the local church. And then he uses this other term, God's steward. It's an interesting term, oikonomos, oikonomos. It has the word in there. The root of this word is the word for house. And so if you were living in that first century culture and you, uh, you had a larger house, a, a larger uh, community around house, maybe you were a little wealthier, you would hire an oikonomos, an administrator, a steward of all of your belongings, of your household experience. And, and they would be the ones who manage those things. So, so the presbuteros or the Episcopos, the elder of the bishop, in Paul's understanding, is a manager of God's house, a steward on behalf of God's agenda. And so he puts forward, here's a bias to receive, Titus. Here's what I want you to go forward with. And first he starts off with home life. And so he says this about home, home life, that the person is to be a husband of one wife and that the children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, scholars, as they look through this verse, they, they raise questions of, well, does this apply up to a certain age of the children? And if it's after that age, then are they really on their own and it's not reflective of the parents? And Paul's, it seems that Paul's uh, uh, point here is look at the management of the home. Look what's taking place. Be aware of this. You're going to go and plant churches. We know that Titus, if Titus is a second-generation leader, Paul being a, a first-generation leader in the church, Titus is a second generation. He's passing the baton on to a third generation of leadership, and Paul's raising that in this context. You need to look, look at their home life. Then he talks a little bit about character. In verse 7, he says, these are the character traits you don't want to see. Verse 8, these are the character traits you do want to see. In verse 7, you don't want 
a person to be arrogant or quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. You notice how all of those are focused on the self? He says instead, the person needs to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Character matters. That the beliefs a person has is, are to be understood in who the person is out in this world. We want to look for these traits, avoid these other traits. Home life, character. Then he goes on in verse 9, he, verse nine, he adds to that vision. He says that, listen, the person must also hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. If you've been tracking through our sermon series so far, this comes up time and time again. That this connection to God's word, that there'd be sound doctrine and understanding. Paul goes on to describe the purpose for this, uh, this holding firm to the trustworthy word. He says, so that the person may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and can rebuke those who are contradicting it. In other words, that there's this real hands-on usefulness of God's Word. Not just a, a, a general acknowledgement that that's God's Word. I have three Bibles at home, or I remember reading it once a long time ago. But that instead of that kind of relationship, but an ongoing useful, that is really a tool in their life. So Paul's bias is this. The bias of this passage, God's Word for us, is that there would be a healthy home, there'd be a godly character, and there'd be biblical faith. You know, in kickball, the, the captain, the person choosing the team, is looking to win. They're, they're looking to have fun, and it's more fun to win, and so they want to look for winners. Who can perform on the field in order to make the experience fun for their team, in order so they can win? The church, our bias, our built-in bias, our mission in this world, is that we would be a witness for Christ. Our biases for redemption, that people are lost and they need to be found. They need to have that experience of being found in Christ, that they are in darkness and they need to experience light, that they were dead and that they would be made alive in Christ. We have a bias for redemption. We have a bias for sanctification, that, that God is at work in our lives to make us more into the image of Jesus day by day by day that we would grow in our holiness, that we would be transformed by God. The church has a bias for worship, not just on Sunday mornings, but all week long, that every word we would speak and every decision we would make would be an act of worship, of worshiping the living God. So our bias is not about winning, but about honoring God. And so Paul, as he looks at this, he goes, here's what you need to keep in mind. Look at their home life. Look at their character. Look at their relationship with God's word and their ability to use God's word in the lives of others. Now, there's two important points worth mentioning. One is that we can come across this passage and we look, and especially if this is our first time, and we look at the passage and we see husband of one wife. And maybe we can be tempted to conclude, well, if you're going to be an elder in a church, you need to be a man. We don't have time for the uh, full teaching on this at this point. Um, but if, if you go and look at whole of Scripture, and if you go and look at even the, the, the very beginning chapters as God creates all things and puts order in all things, 
if you look at the life of Christ and, and the way that Christ interacted with both male and female, that if you look at even at the ministry of Paul and you find that both men and women, women and men, that, that God calls women into ministry just as he calls men into ministry, it, it's a, a, a central value for our denomination that that this idea, this biblical teaching of, a, of egalitarianism, this, this, that God calls all of his people into roles of ministry, of leadership, of pastoring. And, and there's so much more to be able to be said about that. We have wonderful resources. Our denomination even has a theological document on it. And if, if you have questions on this, and if you're wrestling with this, you're wondering more about it, even this week, would you reach out to either Josh or myself, and we'd be more than glad to sit down and have conversations with you, point you in direction of resources. We can send you links to online resources, including the document put out by our denomination. The other important point just to mention as we uh, take a look at the teaching is that the, understand that there are tensions in Scripture. Paul provides a very clear picture here. Listen, you want to look at the person's home life, you want to look at their character, the way they live their faith out. You want to look at the way that they use God's Word. Then we have the, the story of Jesus and Peter. So if you track Peter's life through the stories in the Gospels, we find that here's a pretty rash individual. He, he steps out when others don't. He, he, he jumps in, and sometimes his words get ahead of him, and, and sometimes he needs to be um, uh, spoken to and by Jesus and say, wait a minute, that's not true. And, and then he denies Jesus three times. And it's after that denial that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meets with Peter and, and asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? He does it three times. And each time he says, well, then go and feed my sheep. Because Peter says, yes, go and feed my sheep. And there's this movement into ministry. There's this calling into leadership, a significant role of, of leadership. One could, could make an argument, wait, wait a minute, this is Peter. Don't you remember? He's the one who said, Jesus, don't go and die. He's the one who lost faith while he's out on the water and began to sink. He's the one who denied Jesus. How, how are you putting him into leadership? Why are you putting him into leadership? We can look at the story of Paul. And Paul, who used to be known as Saul, he was actually working against the success of the church. Out of his faith for God, he was going toward Christians and trying to limit their impact and have them arrested and even watching over their death. And yet Jesus gets a hold of Paul on the road to Damascus and, and there's this calling into leadership, into ministry. And even if you were to argue the details of each of the stories, we find a passage like Matthew chapter 28. You may know the end of Matthew's gospel as the place where we find the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all people throughout the whole world. The words just before that, as Jesus met with his disciples, not just the 12, but the larger gathering, it said that they worshiped him, that the disciples worshiped Jesus, and some doubted. They worshiped and some doubted. And then Jesus gives them the words, the Great Commission. It says, go into this world. It doesn't say Jesus turned to those who worshipped and said, hey, tell you what, leave the doubters behind and you go ahead and go and make disciples. It just tells us that Jesus said, now go and make disciples of all people. Even when we get to 1 John and we find in 1 John 1.8 where it says that 
You know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's an affirmation in Scripture that not one of us is perfect. And so even when we look at what Paul is laying forward, we know that there's this tension of, even as we call leaders forward, that they won't be perfect. Elders. Let's talk about Cretans. It's taking place in a specific place, in a specific time. Crete. Maybe some of you have traveled to Crete. I have not. It looks like a lovely place. It's 3,000 square miles in size. It's an island in the Mediterranean. It's about five times the size of um, uh, Peoria County. So Crete may have uh, the Mediterranean Sea around it. We have the Illinois River, okay? We also have the bluff. Uh, Crete happens to have mountains that one of them's over 8,000 feet, so they've got that going for it. We find out in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, that there were people from Crete that were in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was being poured out on uh, the followers of Christ, and people were hearing the good news in their own language. And, and maybe it was those who came back then and shared the gospel with others uh, on the island of Crete, or maybe it was the early church that sent missionaries to Crete. Some even argue that there was a fourth missionary journey of Paul's that is not included in the book of Acts where he went to Crete and planted the churches. Here's what we do find. Paul quotes a philosopher who is from Crete and made a comment on his own people. By the way, there were other people beyond uh, Crete that were making comments on Crete for centuries about how messed up the people were. But this is the one that uh, Paul quoted. He goes, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then someone, I think, made a little chuckle as we were reading through God's Word. It was so appropriate, too, because Paul follows this up with going, this testimony is true. <laughs> I, yeah, I've, I've been to Crete. I know what they're like. We know what this is like. You could ask people around the globe, tell us about Americans. Tell us about the people who live in the United States. And something that they could say is, well, I, I think they're materialistic. They're consumeristic. I found this data on us. The average American home has 300,000 items in it. That's pretty incredible. They were, the, the people who calculate such things say, on average, Americans throw away 68 pounds of clothes a year. You know, if you take one of those large roller suitcases and you go to get on a flight, and like, like I've stuffed those before, and I, I'm just a little bit over 50 pounds when I, I do that, and I have to take something out. So you're talking about one of those large suitcases that even more than that, that we would throw away in a year. You could say the United States, the people there are materialistic, consumeristic. Paul could probably follow up and go, it's true, it's true. Paul has a specific issue in mind. He says among those Cretans, among those who have this deception going on and there's a cultural issue taking place, he said there are these false teachers who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, that they're a part of this circumcision party. Those were the folks coming out of a Jewish background and they wanted to say Jesus plus circumcision. You can be a follower of God. You can see Jesus as the Messiah, but you need to adopt the old ways. You need to adopt the, what God had said long before about circumcision, Jesus plus. Paul said, none of that. That doesn't work. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus. Our faith 
is one that is established by God's grace. We are saved through grace, through God's grace, grace which we receive in faith. What these people are doing is they're upsetting whole families, and Paul says they must be silenced. So he encourages Titus, rebuke them sharply. And he has a, a reason for it. He says that they may be, found, that they may be sound in the faith. He desires them to, to step out of their culture, to step out of the, the old ways, to, to no longer pay attention to those who are commanding them to, to talk this way and, and to go the way of Christ. The picture that he paints is of broken people in a broken culture who have adopted broken ways. And so Paul is calling for a bias. As you're choosing your leaders, as, as you're going around and setting these leaders up in the local churches over the island, find church leaders who help others confront the culture and live differently, that their lives would be based on sound doctrine, that they would be aware of cultural creep into their lives and reject it, that they would go the way of Christ. Which brings us finally to the pure and the defiled. I mentioned that these kickball teams and being chosen, I, there may have been some times when I was chosen last, more often than not, maybe in the last quarter. I know something of what it is to feel like the defiled on the kickball line, the unwanted. And Paul's making a distinction. So the, the pure and the defiled, who are these people? The pure would be those that are saved by grace. Those who are saved by grace and that they then embrace the gospel, the good news of Christ as it was soundly taught. They embrace sound doctrine. Their lives are lived in response to the grace that they have received. The defiled, are they saved? What we find is that they're not embracing the gospel in its biblical purity. They're not of sound doctrine. Paul says in verse 16, they profess to know God but they deny him by their works. In other words, they're not embracing the gospel of Christ, the gospel of sound doctrine. Robert Yarbrough, in his commentary, describes it as a domino effect. It goes along with what Jesus talked, that it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out of them. That if the, if the heart has not been uh, ignited by Christ, if, if it hasn't been surrendered over to Christ, to re receive Christ and respond out of Christ's grace toward us, then everything that goes forward is defiled. They have a bias for something other than what honors God. So these kind of leaders would cut corners, pursue other ends. They would operate with a different set of lenses and filters. They would use a different yardstick. They would embrace different strategies. The pure, the defiled. So our takeaway, our takeaway in all this is that we need God's truth. We need God's truth in our leaders and in ourselves in order to keep our culture from redefining our faith in its image. We need leaders with a bias for the God of the Bible. One little application of this is that when we read through Scripture, a cultural creep in our own experiences. We can be materialistic, uh, consumeristic in our reading. Well, what does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? And here we're being challenged. Think communally. Think larger than just ourselves. When we think about leaders, 
the leaders were to look for, we may have a Jared. We may have somebody that played lacrosse in high school. But that's not what matters. What matters is Christ and his gospel. And can we see Christ and his gospel in the person's actions, in their words, and in our actions and in our words? If you're a leader, if you're a leader, do you hear the call? Do you hear the call of responding to the, to the, um, the bias of God, to, to let your bias be for God? If you're a covenant partner of this congregation, we will be entering the season in which we will nominate leaders. Can you be thinking already who knows God's word, who, whose life is based on sound doctrine, whose character aligns, whose home is in order? If you're on the outside of faith looking in, I'm so glad you're here. You can help hold us accountable to the very things that Scripture teaches. You can say, listen, you say these things, but I see more of culture in you. A bias for God and for God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you, you know our situation and you know how easy it is to recast your church and your mission in terms of what we're used to. God, would you keep working in us? Be with our elders and our deacons, with our staff, with our ministry leaders. Would you keep calling them into the deep waters of faith? God, would you call them deeply into your word and that you would help all of our leaders to to be able to use your word and to base their life on your gospel. God, would you find that to be true in each one of us, whether we're in a role of a leader or not, that, that God, people would see in us a bias for you in all things. We give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.